Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Before we begin today, I just want to say a quick thank you to all those who have taken the time to listen to the first couple of episodes as I've been feeling my way through podcast land. I want to give a special shout out to my listeners in Kenya, the Philippines, and Poland. Thanks for being out there and listening. Please share it with your friends. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Giselle Wires. She is the Donald E. Peterson Endowed Professor of Choral Music at the University of Washington, where she conducts the award-winning University Chorale. Her choral works are published by Santa Barbara Music Publishing Company as part of the Giselle Wires Choral Series and have been performed across the United States, Canada, Australia, Cuba, and numerous European cities. In 2017, she received the ACDA Northwest Composers Commission, and her latest premiere was a 30-minute choral cycle entitled And All Shall Be Well, commissioned by the Vashon Island Chorale. Giselle Wires, welcome to Movable Dough. It is great to talk with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's go back as far as we can. When you were a little girl dreaming of your future, what was the first thing that you remember wanting to be? When you said to yourself, I want to be blank when I grow up, what was that blank? Well, I think it was Barbara Streisand. Oh, you wanted to be Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I wanted to do what I wanted to do what she did. Um, I grew up during the era of vinyl records, and we used to go to used record stores in Portland and pick up records. Barbara Streisand, of course, was performing a lot in the '60s, and then these albums would be in these used record stores, only like seventy-nine cents each or a dollar fifty each. And so I collected virtually every Barbara Streisand record, which I don't know if you know how many, but there's like over 30. And then I sort of lost count and got older and my tastes developed in new ways. But yeah, I thought she was the most incredible singer and actress in the world. Well, I know there are a lot of people out there that would wholeheartedly agree with you. <laughs> so how do you go from wanting to be Barbara Streisand <laughs> to becoming an internationally recognized composer and conductor? Like, what was your path? How did you get there? Well, in high school, I actually was in a lot of musical theater. I, I was the lead in Oklahoma. I played Lori. And I took a lot of acting classes. I studied dance all through my childhood up, up till high school. I played in the band. I mean, I, I was doing a lot of artistic things. But I always thought of it as a hobby. And so I think the whole Barbara Streisand piece is just, she sort of stoked my my dramatic capacity, I think, to connect and to be really excited about things and to show my passion. Um, and so when I did get the opportunity to do little things like warm up the choir in the high school or put together an arrangement of a popular piece for the group called Triple Trio that was like nine female singers, um, SSAA singers is what we would say today. Um, and so I was so excited and uh, I felt this spark kind of growing, but I always just thought it was for fun. And then all of that, of course, changed in college. So it, it really took me a while, I think, to realize that that thing that was like, a, quote, a lot of fun or 
created a lot of energy for me in my life was also actually my calling. Were you in Triple Trio or was that just a group mm -hmm. you were arranging music for? Yeah, I was in the group and I was lucky I had a great high school director that sort of saw that I was composing a lot on the side and I would sit at lunch and play on his piano. And, and so he gave me this opportunity to create an arrangement. That's great. So you were composing from, from high school on yeah. when you started writing. Actually, I was thinking about this recently that I was also in this flute duo um, called the Dynamic Duo. <laughs> <laughs> and I was arranging for that because I really liked popular music. So this was in sixth grade. And I liked Carly Simon. Um, I liked, you know, ABBA, all these different popular artists. And so I would try to create these little duets with flute um, and sometimes with piano. So I've been arranging and composing for a long time. That's amazing. So I know many musicians, when they look back at their early music careers, um, they can credit uh, teachers that they had with their with giving direction to their music careers. I know for me, I credit my my piano teacher. You know, when I was 14 years old, she gave me the song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And that sort of made me continue to love playing the piano, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, who in your past do you see as a pivotal character in your story? I think in terms of that growing, like burgeoning realization that composing and performing was a passion, which was, it was happening all through high school, sort of gradually. And then finally in college, it sort of bloomed. I think the person that really helped me to feel and understand that was Deborah Porter. And she was my piano teacher in high school. She was very unconventional. Um, and it turns out later, she called me and told me that she was bipolar. And um, I, I, I hadn't known that about her at the time, but it turns out that she had some um, mental health issues. But the way that I experienced her was that every time I went to a lesson, I never knew what was gonna happen. And it might be that she would pluck a leaf off a tree and have me look at the tiny little, what I would call veins, you know, in, in, the, in the leaves, and then ask me how that was like a Schubert art song. And I would have to figure out kind of an answer related to like the structure of an art song and how each motive was then also developed into a larger whole or something. Um, and she also really stoked my interest in composing and she would have me work on like, you know, typical classical literature, but she would also ask me to compose. And she would say, you know, come back next week with 16 bars, you know. And I recently looked her up because I had kind of lost track of her and, and I knew that she had mental health issues and it turns out that she's passed away. Um, but I was able to read her obituary. It turns out she went to Reed College and she was totally brilliant. And if you don't mind, just really quick, I want to read one paragraph of, of something I learned about her. Oh, absolutely. Um, from the Reed magazine, it said that um, in her thesis that was advised by a psychology professor, Alan Noringer, she demonstrated that pigeons could tell the difference between the music of Bach and the music of Stravinsky. It was published by a high tier journal and continues to be cited to this day. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I I want to look that up. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously like was really brilliant and also a little bit 
you know, on the edge, but for me, she really unlocked a lot of inspiration. Yeah, I bet because you you've got to be able to think about music a different direction if you're saying here look at a leaf and yeah <laughs> yeah really inspiring and so yeah she was definitely a really important person in my life in high school yeah so talking about your journey you know you you took a journey through the United States in your higher education you know you did your your undergrad at UC Santa Cruz uh, a master's at Westminster. Uh, a doctorate at the University of Arizona. Now you're a professor in Seattle at the University of Washington. So what what do you think you have learned on your journey through all these different points across the U.S. that have shaped who you are as a musician or as a composer? Well, I think that, you know, each choice was different, of course, about where to study. But um, by the time I, I got serious about conducting, which was in college, I had a mentor there as well, Nicole Paymal, and she was very helpful in telling me that in order to get a higher ed position someday, it would be helpful to move around the country. And you can get different things from each institution, but you can also get different things from each region of the country, you know, back east for Westminster, for instance, or the southwest in Arizona. The only place I, I kind of regret I didn't really get to spend time in is the Midwest because that's such a rich part of our, of our country and our choral tradition. But, um, you know, part of it was strategic, I think, in terms of really wanting to know what these different regions of the United States were about um, and making contacts and growing, of course, as a musician. But I also always was committed to living in a place that where I felt that I could be inspired. And for me personally, that means the natural world. And so even in Princeton, I was able to get out into the woods on my mountain bike quite a lot and spend a lot of time in nature. And then in Arizona, the Catalinas, I mean, it's, it's such a gorgeous place to live. Um, and I'm really, made, I'm really glad I made that choice, even though it meant that I had to turn down other opportunities in different parts of the US. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting as you move around the country, the different perspectives that you can learn about. Uh, you, people think differently in different parts of the U.S. And so to yeah. get that perspective is really important. Absolutely. So when did you decide that you were going to pursue music? I mean, I know you were interested in it growing up. When was that moment that you said, this um, is what I want to do? I remember really vividly, it was in my second quarter of conducting class in college. So I was a sophomore and uh, actually I might've even been a junior and I was taking conducting and it was a small group and I was doing Brahms Requiem first movement with piano and the little lab choir that, <laughs> you know, we all get to have a little group of eight to 10 singers or something. And um, Nicole Paymont, um who went to Eastman and is now very, um, very involved in opera conducting and world premieres in the Bay Area. Um, she stopped me and she kind of gave me a little bit of a maestro moment, you know, where she's like, you know, I think you want something different there. And I think that if you, if you feel it in your heart, you need to show it, you know, and <laughs> gave me that kind of that drama, you know, that I was mentioning with the Barbara Streisand. Um, and, and so she gave me this charge to be more expressive and to be more intense. And I think that's something that 
as as a person, I tend to be more kind of easygoing, um, and also possibly a gender kind of thing that maybe I felt uncomfortable as a woman being really um, like forthright and intense with my artistry right out of the gate. You know, I was kind of holding back, and she told me not to do that. And then the choir sang back to me, and it was a beautiful sound. And after that day, I started thinking to myself, I think I really want to do what she does. I like what she does. And so I went and talked to her about it. And I said, do you think that I show potential? And she said, yes, I do think you could do this for a living. Wow. It, it's really important to have people like that sort of cheering you on as you go. Who were other people that you felt were your cheerleaders as you were going through your journey? Well, I think I was always pretty careful about the people I chose to work with. You know, I didn't want to feel discouraged or intimidated. And I, I had had a few of those experiences along the way, like we all do. So the people that I was able to work with, I, I think of like Alan Kroll at Westminster Choir College, um, Joseph Flummerfelt. After he kind of got to know me, he was a little bit more of a tough nut to, to crack, but he became very warm and supportive. And then I, I think of my, my high school choir teacher. He was super supportive and, and just always um, very joyful, I think. And I, I think that making music should be joyful. It, it is competitive and intense to be a conductor or a composer and get paid for it, but it also should be something that people feel good about doing. Yeah. So yeah. thinking thinking about being paid as a composer, um, I noticed looking through your list of works that most of your pieces have been commissioned uh, by some group or another. Do you ever feel a desire to compose something that you want, or do you only have time to write when you're commissioned, or or where do you stand uh, on that? Well, you know, it's a really timely question for me because right now with COVID, I'm not receiving new commission requests. Right. And I had one that was postponed. Um, so I kind of know it's it's on the back burner. But I mean, in the past, the commission has been important to me, not so much financially, but because I, I need to imagine a group in my mind when I write. Um, it's kind of, you know, Stravinsky talked about limitations being will set you free or something. I don't remember exactly what the term was, but he, he talked about um, that idea. And then somebody else, I, I can't remember who these people are, but art exists within a frame. That, that whole idea mm -hmm. is that you need sometimes to have limitations, but also inspiration. And so for me in the past, that has been the groups that commissioned me because I think about them and I, I ask what they what they need and what they want. But now with COVID, I think I'm getting to the point I'm kind of settling into this way of being and thinking, yeah, I mean, I should do that and and I will. But what I've been doing mostly artistically lately that has been kind of new is working a lot more with my singing, my solo singing, because I felt like for a long time, I kind of put that away. I was too busy conducting and writing music right and now it's something i can just do in the bedroom you know just go in the bedroom shut the door work on my voice yeah, so that's, that's kind of great. been what i've been doing lately it's good to have that opportunity that's for yeah. sure yeah okay so i know 
sort of first and foremost, you're an educator. I know you are passionate about music education. I've had the privilege of being a student of yours, mm -hmm. as well as lecturing alongside of you. Uh, so I, I know that you are uh, a music educator at heart. So let's let's talk about demystifying this world of composing. Yeah. Okay. So for some people, the idea of sitting down with a blank manuscript and writing music is completely intimidating, completely foreign. They wouldn't even know where to start. So how do you as an educator help them start the process? Right. That's a great question. I always like to, even when I work with high schoolers, I like to ask them, like, how many of you write songs? Or how many of you improvise? Because if you use the word song, it totally opens doors. And you'll be amazed at how many people even in high school are, are writing music, but they don't think of it as composing. So right. I think part of it is getting that word out of the picture at first, composing. Um, and, and just talking about the fact that a composition is basically a frozen improvisation. It's something that you've been able to come up with out of thin air and then sort of freeze it in time and notate it. Um, so getting people interested in the idea of improvisation, um, demystifying the fact that it has to be perfect. It doesn't, you know, allowing people to enjoy again, to take pleasure in creating music. And then I also talk a lot about like the process. Um, you know, how do you choose the music? How do you, I mean, the text, how do you choose the text? Do you write the text first or do you write the music first, you know, or, um, do you not write your own text, but use a poet? Or do you use prose? And if so, how do you change prose into a quote poem that you can set right. to music, which is actually something I've been doing more of lately and it's it's hard. So I don't know, I guess it's just partly figuring out what their questions are and what's blocking them. And then really trying to stoke the excitement and the, the lack of censor throwing out the censor, thinking of, you know, Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, and the morning pages that she talks about, just get it out, don't judge, and then refine. Um, so I don't know, I mean, it's kind of a bigger thing that takes time to unpack with students, but usually it's just helping them take those first few steps. Yeah, I, I found in my own experience that being willing to improvise and be willing to make mistakes is is the first hurdle. Yes. Um, saying it's okay if this isn't perfect right now. It's okay if I'm just playing around with ideas. And also, I think it's fair to tell them that we, you're a composer too. I mean, we have bad days. And yeah. I have days where I sit down and I, I improvise. It just sounds like what I did yesterday. Right. <laughs> Or it sounds like a Radiohead chord progression. I'm like, well, shoot, I can't use that. <laughs> Just because I like that. I mean, I'm, that's Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's okay, yeah, to tell them that um, if it's not if it's not flowing, stop and start again. All right. So I've got one last question before we get to some of your music. What is something unexpected about your taste in music that people wouldn't realize about you? just by just by surface knowing you like do you have like a a secret passion for hardcore rap i mean what what is your un, unexpected music taste right 
Well, for a while, I, I do feel like um, as a young professor, which I'm not anymore, <laughs> but when I was, um, there were things that I didn't tell my students. So now I will tell my students that I love Joni Mitchell. Um, I, I think folk music from the 70s is a huge font of inspiration. Um, when you think about the artists that were coming out of that era. And, you know, I think about how much I love the Beatles and the collaboration between Paul and John and, and the competition and the rivalry. And um, Peter Gabriel, to me, is a very inspiring figure because of his sort of multimedia aspect of how he would produce these entire shows that were really holistic and, and beautiful. And, I like Sting, and I got to kind of meet him. I wasn't allowed to talk to him, but I got to be in the same room with him once. Um, so yeah, I guess it's like that pop folk side of me, I used to never talk about to my students because I was afraid <laughs> that it would, you know, delegitimize my classical side. Right. But I think there's much more of a, a blending now going on in our culture, partly because of streaming and our access to media and I think it's a really healthy thing, ultimately. So I want to ask you now about some of your compositions, starting with one of your more popular pieces, The Waking, published in 2009. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have either heard this piece or performed it. Um, I would love to know the story behind it, the sort of the genesis of where this piece came from. Sure. Um, it's one of those ones that I got sort of for free, uh, a piece that came easily. And it came in the summer. Uh, it was a couple weeks visiting Salt Lake City. So it was very hot. Um, my husband's family lives there. And I was looking through books of poetry down in um, the basement of, of my mother-in-law's house. And um, my husband's dad um, was a poetry major and also then became a medical doctor. So he was very broad in his kind of brilliance and perspective about the world. He's passed away since then. But I found this book of Theodore Recchi poems in the basement and I brought it upstairs and sat on the deck. I was like drinking coffee and relaxing. And I, I found this poem, The Waking, you know, and I hadn't heard of it before. Now I know it's famous, but I didn't know that at the time. And then I just went to this nearby church where I could get some privacy and I kind of made an arrangement with them that I could work while I was in town. And I wrote it in like two, three days. And it came mostly through the, the rhythm of the words. You know, I strolled across an open field. You know, it just sort of has this flow to it. And it came, yeah, it came easily and it was very rhythmic and full of life. And I was so happy for it to, to be in the world, you know? Yeah, I, I love the... always that way. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be really hard to write music sometimes, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. But I know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, I, I love the, the moments in this piece where you have those um, really still ostinatos. Um, I strolled across an open field, I strolled across an open field, where uh, over the top of that, you, you throw the, this way, that yeah. way. I, I love that. Call. Yeah, the little bird call out there. Uh, I just want to read this poem uh, for those Great. that may not know the, the text. Uh, so like, 
like Giselle said, this is by Theodore Retke. Um, he goes, I strolled across an open field. The sun was out. Heat was happy. This way, that, this way, the wren's throat shimmered either to other the blossoms sang. The stones sang, the little ones did, and the flowers jumped like small goats. A ragged fringe of daisies waved. I wasn't alone in a grove of apples. Far in the wood and nestling side, the dew loosened its morning smells. I came where the river ran over stones. My ear knew an early joy. And all the waters of all the streams sang in my veins that summer day. Yeah, beautiful poem. And it, it really gives this sort of dreamlike image of, of, of these different images coming to the forefront and then disappearing uh, just like in a dream. Is that sort of at what you were thinking as you were composing? Yeah, I was thinking, I, I think I was thinking a lot about the overflowing ebullience and joy that is reflected in the text and the idea of the stones singing, for instance. Um, of course, we think of birds as singing, but imagining nature being so vibrant and so healthy and so thriving that even the stones could be singing, <laughs> you know, um, and we always, I think we think about environmental degradation and you know how we must preserve nature and this is something i i care really deeply about but it was a pleasure to just sort of live in that world that was created by retke that was a vibrant happy nature you know literally joyful yeah in its in in being its creation so yeah i think i was i, I was trying to use a lot of rhythm and like some ostinatos as you mentioned it's sort of a rolling figure in um, the bass line and then allowing the the sopranos to do sort of some more quick singing near the end of the piece and just create a lot of variety and then what's really weird about it is if you listen to it it's only like two minutes 12 seconds like it's a really short piece but yeah. it didn't feel short to write it of course but, <laughs> um, <laughs> it just kind of is it's to me it's also about life how fleeting you know, two minutes of joy, right? Yeah, that's great. That's a that's yeah. a really neat perspective. All right, so let's take a moment and listen to this piece.
All right, so now I'd like to ask you about a piece of yours that I hadn't heard before until I was doing research for this podcast, A Lonely Land. Um, let's listen to a moment first, and then I'll ask you to talk about this piece. So I assume for this piece that the text was also sort of driving the composition of this piece. Uh, can you tell us more about the creation of A Lonely Land? Sure. I was so lucky. I've had an ongoing partnership and collaboration with John Sousa, who is the conductor of the Gilroy, Gilroy High School choral program. And um, he commissioned me to write a piece for his choir's tour to Ireland. And um, I, I thought, okay, it's, it's got to be kind of epic because to me, Ireland is so, th there's such a history there. There's, um, there's kind of a mysticism, I think, especially with the cliffs and the, you know, the climate being, you know, very foggy and kind of, um, yeah, it's just a, a place where mythology could happen, right? And, and has happened. Um, and so I, it took me a long time to find the text, but I ended up really liking the William Allingham poem that I found, because it was kind of about an old Ireland. You know, mm. it was about looking back in time and it has a folk melody that I, I, I used a folk melody um, that I, I think is Firanbata, the theme from Firanbata, um, that I kind of wove in. Uh, and then the, the text was the William Allingham poem. 
Um, and I, I wanted to do it that way because I figured they'd probably be singing for people in churches and also maybe in more informal settings. And I was hoping they would recognize that Firambata theme. And I heard back that, that they did. So <laughs> it was kind of a nice way, I think, to um, show reverence for the country of Ireland, sure. um, for an American choir that could go to sing it. And I think it, I like how it turned out. I set it for violin and piano and choir. And, and then nice. it was recently recorded by Oregon Repertory Singers with Ethan Sperry conducting. And so I'm excited to have that kind of finished product that people can go and listen to. Yeah, that uh, obligato violin part is beautifully haunting. Uh, the way the way it's working against the the choir and the piano, it it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so you. bravo on that piece. Yeah. All right. So last, I want to ask about your most recent premiere. Um, you know, before choral singing was made illegal because of COVID. Uh, so your choral cycle and all shall be well. This is a large work, seven mm -hmm. movements uh, for chorus, string quartet, and piano. Uh, so have you ever worked on a multi-movement work before this one? Only like a cycle, three three movement cycles mm -hmm. in the past, but never something 30 minutes in length. So I know you're well-versed in choral literature. Uh, were there any composers of the past that you looked at for inspiration of about how you should approach this uh, monumental yeah. work? Yeah, it, yeah, it was it was daunting at first. Um, I feel really lucky. Gary Cannon, who's the conductor of the Vashon Island Chorale and also has many other groups in the city, including a, a professional choir, the Emerald Ensemble. Um, he approached me and asked me if I was interested and I said, absolutely. And I said, I'm scared, you know, and he's like, you can do it. <laughs> Um, so I think that I thought a lot about the the way the movement should be kind of um, set up in a symmetrical way, similar to what you would see with like the Brahms Requiem. Um, and so I, I attempted to use some of the material from the first movement in the final movement. I definitely thought about where is the center of the piece going to be. Um, I definitely thought about progression in the idea of the movements needing to have enough variety, but also a feeling of forward momentum through right. the cycle so that the most climactic moment is actually in the, the final movement, kind of in, in the middle of golden mean area of the final movement. Um, and I, I thought a lot about the text because I think that if you're doing a larger work, you you really need to have a feeling of telling a story and you also need to have a theme that they had told me the theme was legacy or quote what we leave behind so i had that to work with and uh the woman who helped to create the commission and fund it joanne bardine she and i actually shared our poetry ideas together and really talked about what are all the different ways that we can look at legacy of course, there's there's the mourning and the sadness and the loss, but there's also the joys of things like family or work, legacy through work or legacy through nature, that the earth has a legacy, right, that goes beyond just our human experience. So um, I think that the text 
securing all the text, getting permissions and making sure that there was a flow and a progression that took longer than the composing part. Uh -huh. Would you say that was your, your biggest challenge with this piece? Yes, absolutely. But I mean, it was great to collaborate with Joanne because I, I didn't feel like I was doing it by myself. And she right. actually pointed me to a choir member who had a close friend who had translated these beautiful poems and they ended up in the piece. So the Mikhail Khalil Heyalel, um, those movements, song is the infinite time, song has a bird for rhythm and it is in song. So movements two, four and six, they're all by the same poet. And oh, okay. that helped to really stitch the whole thing together as well. Yeah, I bet. So yeah. I know I know. sometimes when I'm writing, uh, I'll write something, either a, a, a moment or a measure or a section, and I'll think, wow, that was amazing. And it gives me chills just listening to, listening to it back or playing through it. Were there any moments in this piece that gave you those sort of feelings as you were writing? Yeah, I think... You know, I think about um, I Go Among Trees, a, a piece that I also have composed and how I can remember writing it or the waking. I can remember sitting down and, and composing it. And I definitely have that vivid memory of the movement five that's called Sometimes I Choose a Cloud. Mm -hmm. And um, I got this recurring bass progression going in the piano and I just let it repeat over and over, um, which is something in the past, I, I think I've always thought, oh no, it needs to be more complicated. It needs to be more interesting. <laughs> but there was sort of a, a vibe, I think that I was able to create with that progression that then really inspired the melody to come out. And then it was so easy to write the harmonies and the whole thing just flowed. It was really a great feeling. And then conversely, I can tell you, I had a lot of hard, really hard times finishing the first movement. Like I, I like to work in order, but I finally had to just put the first movement aside and work on other stuff until I could come back and feel in the confidence and the inspiration to finish it. So mm -hmm. it's kind of weird how that ended up happening. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the fifth movement because I, I wrote in my notes my my shiver point, you know, where my my socks melted was the end of the fifth movement, mm -hmm. uh, when you have the duet between the two voices. Yeah, it absolutely made my socks melt. It was <laughs> it was it was beautiful, and I think it was that build up through movement five that led to that point that really encapsulated. So I was I was just going to play a snippet of the end of five, but I think we'll listen to a little bit more of it.
So I know choosing a favorite movement may be like a parent trying to choose a favorite child. Okay. <laughs> but since I'm on the outside looking in, I can say that the the energy and movement for sort of the mm -hmm. you know the, the pinnacle of this piece, yeah. uh, Song Has a Bird for Rhythm, uh, is my favorite. Okay, we're gonna listen to the, a, a snippet of that one for a second. Were you thinking about connecting musical ideas sort of to this to this creative point here in the middle? Is that sort of the direction you were trying to go? Uh, yes and no. I think I definitely was strategic in putting movement for where I did. You know, I, I knew that that text would be really dynamic and exciting to set. Um, but I, I think that because of the way the text works with the seventh movement being the T.S. Eliot poem, mm -hmm. We Shall Not Cease, um, I kind of knew that I'd always have to sort of hold back a little bit of the most intense writing for that uh -huh. final movement, just because the gravity of him as a poet is beyond really any of the other ones. Um, but I really loved writing song as a bird for rhythm because I got this thing going in the bass. It was really fast. And I, I was thinking, oh, I hope the cellist can play it. You know, <laughs> he was so naive. And of course, he, he was amazing. They, they hired professionals. Um, and then I thought, OK, I'm going to get the viola line to be similar, but it's not just going to be in thirds. I'm going to let it crunch. And then um, kind of this more goofy, almost goofy rhythmic thing in the voices, you know, song has a bird for rhythm, <laughs> you know, it's almost kind of a little bit jazzy. Well, I know if you put it all together, it definitely does not come yeah. across that way. Yeah. Yeah. It just turned out to be, it is the center of the piece. Um, and it, it turned out to be pretty exciting, I think. Um, and I was glad that I could write something fast because I think a lot of choral composers, maybe not you, but me, 
we struggle with writing quick rhythmic stuff and uh, it's a lot easier to just create a lyrical, beautiful melody and live with that for a while. Yeah. So it was kind of nice, good variety, I think, for that one. So what, so now that you've gone past this 30 minute cycle, what's on the horizon for you? What are you working on now? Well, I can tell you that the thing that I'm most proud of recently has yet to be premiered. It was kind of a COVID um, casualty, <laughs> but it was a, a five minute work for wind ensemble and choir. And um, the Port Angeles high school uh, music program uh, wanted me to, to write something for Jolene and, and Doug's retirement. And so I was really, I was really honored, but I was very intimidated to write for wind ensemble. So I got through that and I felt really good about how it turned out. Of course, I can't know ultimately until it's performed. I right. think all composers understand that their work has to be tested by a real group to know if, if it's the real thing or not. But um, to be honest, I haven't thought further, what should I do next? I've been instead focusing on putting my website together because I want people to be able to purchase any of my manuscript pieces that are not mm -hmm. published. And I want the whole perusal score thing and the listening and all the things that um, composers are able to do with their websites. And that has been pretty time consuming. I'm sure you know, having been through yeah. that yourself. Still working on it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm working on my singing. I'm loving that. And, and I'm excited about the future. And I, I do know that we will get back to where we were. And I just hope that this time, this pause will be an opportunity for me to reflect and understand more about the world and, and um, issues of diversity, for instance, and um, ways in which we can be more impactful as artists beyond just creating beautiful sounds. Um, so I'm sort of being patient with myself and knowing that it's okay if I don't know what that next step is, but that it, it will arrive. I believe that it will arrive. Yeah. So speaking of your website, you want to plug your website at this point, tell people where they can find you. I can say it's going to be cool. And you can go, <laughs> <laughs> you can go to giselwires.com, but just know that it's, uh, it's out of date for now. It's going to be ready probably in, four months or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you have up there looks great right now. Do you yeah. have any, uh, any social media, uh, that you, that you sure. plug in as well? Um, I'm actually on Twitter and it's the stone sang. <laughs> I actually oh, beautiful. Grace from the waking, or you can just Google my name. Um, and then of course, Facebook. So people are welcome to look for me either place. Well, Giselle Wires, thank you so much for joining us today on Movable Dough. It has been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. For, thanks for your insightful questions. And I'm excited to hear more of your episodes in the future. Thank you very much. My guest today was composer Dr. Giselle Wires. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Dr. Wires, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>